You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 24, To Destiny. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time at the end of 1795. 1796 would be the pivotal year of Napoleon's early career, so let's set up the action. Bonaparte was in Paris and riding high. He'd recently been promoted to General of Division, and was serving as Commander of the Army of the Interior, a politically sensitive position which he'd parlayed into some serious patronage for his friends and family. Napoleon's actions on 13 Vendémiaire had saved the new constitution, and he was not shy about reaping the rewards. So what was this new government Bonaparte had saved? It's known to history as the Directory. It would rule France for the next four years, and would set the stage for the Consulate, Bonaparte's first government. So I think it's worth a look. With apologies to our overseas listeners, I'll compare and contrast it a bit with the American government. And I'm not just being chauvinistic. The U.S. Constitution is one of the few written in this era that's still in force albeit with a few modifications along the way. The foundational document of the Directory, the Constitution of Year 3, was ludicrously complicated. You practically needed a law degree just to figure out how the government functioned. And this was partially by design. It was a very elitist, authoritarian document. It wasn't overtly anti-democratic, but the voice of the people could be expressed only indirectly through a tiered system in which it was watered down and filtered through the influence of the political elite at each successive level. The right to vote was restricted to men over 21 years of age who either met certain property qualifications or were veterans of the wars of the revolution. Not terribly restrictive by the standards of the time. However, none of the positions in the government were directly elected. The voters cast ballots only for regional electoral assemblies, sort of like the Electoral College in the U.S. These assemblies elected men for higher office from among themselves, so the legislature would be created with no direct input from the voters. At each level of government, the wealth and age requirements for office became more strict, so a citizen might qualify to vote, 
but be too young or too poor to actually sit in the local electoral assembly himself, and a man who qualified for the electoral assembly might be ineligible for the legislature, etc. People saw through this sham democracy. By the end of the Directory's existence, electoral turnout in France got down to almost 10%, and that's 10% of eligible voters, a tiny minority of the minority who qualified. To put that in perspective, that's five and a half times lower than the turnout in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, and out of a much smaller pool of potential voters. We are talking about tens of thousands of people voting on the destiny of a country of around 30 million. The Constitution of Year 3 created a two-chamber legislature. The lower house, equivalent to the House of Representatives in the U.S., was known as the Council of 500. The upper house, equivalent to the U.S. Senate, was known as the Council of Elders. The legislature would pick the executive branch, a five-man committee known as the Directory. Theoretically, power was shared between the legislature and executive, with checks and balances between the two, but the directory immediately came to dominate, which is probably a big reason the whole system of government came to be called the directory for short. One unusual feature of the executive was that every year the five directors would put their names in a hat the man whose name was drawn at random would step down and be replaced. This was supposed to provide a balance between continuity and healthy turnover. In practice, you can probably guess just how random this procedure actually was. I won't burden you with the names of all five men selected to be the first directors, but as you may have guessed, Paul Balra was one of them. So was the tireless army reformer and strategist, Lazar Carnot. He had the, perhaps somewhat dubious, distinction of serving a major role in every government of the revolution. I'm sure many of you are thinking, five presidents sounds like a recipe for chaos. And you're right. Very quickly, the directors formed little cliques and factions and began scheming against one another. The revolutionaries weren't completely blind to this possibility, but since the execution of King Louis, one of their biggest worries was that investing too much power in one man would lead to that man becoming a tyrant. And so, this unwieldy system was deemed better than the alternative. Administration was highly centralized under the Constitution of Year 3. Absolutely everything was run from Paris. Even minor local government officials were directly appointed by the relevant ministry in the capital. The Constitution was drafted by men who had survived the chaotic, violent post-revolutionary period, and they were determined to learn from the mistakes of earlier governments and create a system that limited what they saw as sources of disorder, too much democracy, too many civil liberties, and too little central control. As I've said before, these were ruthless pragmatists, not idealists. The Directory is a bit of a historical orphan. By that, I mean there isn't really any class of people or political movement that see themselves as its spiritual descendants today. 
Very few sane adults think any faction during the French Revolution was perfect. But plenty of people do identify to some degree with some of its participants. Many on the left, and even a few on the nationalist right, will defend the Jacobins. Conservatives tend to sympathize with the monarchists. And centrists and liberals tend to identify with moderate revolutionaries, like the Girondins, or liberal nobles, like Lafayette. Even if they don't agree with all of the actions of these historical groups, they see something of themselves in these philosophical forebearers, which makes them custodians of their preferred faction's legacy. Nobody really feels that way about the Directory, and not without good reason. This was in many ways a continuation of the Thermidorian Convention. It remained just as corrupt, unprincipled, and unscrupulous. Ideologically speaking, the Directory was all over the map. Think back to our episode on Vendémiaire, the way the Thermidorian Convention flitted back and forth, supporting the right to crush the left, and then supporting the left to suppress the right. That pattern continued under the new constitution. You might call them centrists, but there was not much philosophical consistency to their rhetoric or policies. Their only true ideology was hostility to anyone who might threaten the uneasy peace they had brought to France. And of course, making money and maintaining their own power. It wasn't pretty, but they did succeed in staying in power for four years. And that's a pretty good run for this turbulent era of French politics. But their methods didn't endear them to anyone. Not at the time, and certainly not today. So these guys were nasty characters, and there aren't many people in the modern world who feel obligated to defend them. Naturally, history has not been kind to their legacy. Scholars from the political left, right, and center, from every school of thought, have been almost unanimous in calling the leaders of the Directory incompetent, selfish, and stupid. There is certainly a lot to criticize about the Directory, but recently historians have given them a second look and found that they might not have been quite as bad as consensus suggests. As you can probably tell, I don't particularly like the Directory but I think their reputation probably has suffered unjustly due to their status as historical orphans. Much as I hate to admit it, the Directory had some successes. For starters, actually staying in power and giving France a consistent system of government for four years was a real achievement. There were still moments of political crisis, conspiracies, coup attempts, and factional infighting, but things were positively tranquil compared to the peak years of chaos. Sure, the government kept the peace for mostly selfish reasons, and with some pretty unscrupulous methods, but after six years of constant turmoil, the people of France needed a little stability, and the Directory gave it to them. The quality of administration improved as well. Unlike previous governments, the Directory didn't particularly care about ideological purity or revolutionary fervor. Anyone who took active part in dissident political organizing was dealt with harshly, but if you were willing to keep your mouth shut and do your job, it didn't matter what you believed. The new government was corrupt, but once its cronies were taken care of, 
Its only real interest was in keeping things running smoothly, so that the gravy train could keep running without interruption. As a result, a lot of competent bureaucrats were hired and promoted, along with all the cousins and chums of politicians and contractors, of course. The Directory's biggest achievements were financial. The national crisis that had led to the revolution had been largely caused by economic problems. Successive revolutionary governments had helped ameliorate some of the worst effects of these problems, but they remained essentially unsolved. Under each successive regime, France had limped along with a totally dysfunctional economy. The population was still suffering from chronic food shortages and massive inflation. The government was still drowning in debt and running huge deficits. The same problems we were talking about way back in Episodes 5 and 5.5. Napoleon would inherit many of these problems when he took power in 1799. However, it was under the Directory in which the government first began bringing the financial situation under control. They restructured France's public debt, reformed the tax system, and rationalized the currency. They also got a lot of help from the military. When France was losing the war, it had been ruinously expensive, but as Republican armies pushed into coalition territory, they were increasingly able to feed, equip, and even pay themselves with what they seized from the enemy. After some major conquests, French generals were even able to send back some of their spoils to Paris to help prop up the national budget. As I mentioned last episode, the government had started getting some nice cash infusions from the Batavian Republic, France's new so-called Sister Republic in what was formerly the Netherlands. This Sister Republic system would soon be duplicated elsewhere. It had taken over a century to dig France into this financial hole, and none of these factors came close to pulling it out. But, taken all together, they were a start, the first steps towards stabilization. The period of the Directory was certainly no golden age. It's easy to see why no one looked back on it fondly. But, for all their faults, Barra and his cronies were able to give France a modicum of stability when it was needed most. Of course, stability is all in the eye of the beholder. We will have plenty more coups and conspiracies and other fiascos to talk about before Napoleon finally succeeds in bringing this system down in 1799. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Speaking of Napoleon, during the earliest days of the Directory, he uncharacteristically had much more on his mind than war and politics. 
he was infatuated with a woman he knew as Rose Tasher de la Pagerie, but who posterity remembers as Josephine de Beauharnais. For simplicity's sake, I'll refer to her as Josephine from here on out. It's hard to know the real Josephine. She was not particularly outspoken, and she didn't leave behind very much in the form of letters or memoirs. As a woman with a colorful past, who married one of the most famous and powerful men in history, she was the subject of rampant gossip in her own time and wild speculation and myth-making ever since. Just like the Directory, she's also a bit of a historical orphan. There are some sympathetic portrayals of Josephine in pop culture, but serious historians of the Napoleonic era have generally taken a negative view, depicting her as a vapid, immoral party girl, a Delilah to Napoleon's Samson. History is often unkind to women, particularly women like Josephine, who was always free-spirited, particularly in pursuing her sexual appetites. She certainly had her faults, and self-indulgence ranked high among them. She also led a complicated, often tragic life, and looking at the whole sweep of her biography goes a long way to explaining those faults. I'll let you judge to what degree it excuses them. Josephine was born in the Caribbean, probably on the island of Martinique. Her father was an ex-army officer who owned a small sugarcane plantation. This put her family among the elite of the French colonial society, but the modest size of their holdings put them near the bottom of that elite stratum. They lost that tenuous claim to status in 1766, when the family plantation was destroyed by a hurricane. Josephine was three years old. Her parents lacked the money to rebuild, but were desperate to maintain their foothold in Caribbean high society and so they pinned all their hopes and ambitions on their daughters. From a very early age, maybe even as long as she could remember, Josephine was groomed to be an ideal bride for a rich man from a good family. I have to believe this had an effect on Josephine, her own parents raising her to believe her worth depended entirely on men finding her appealing. Still, Josephine spoke fondly of her childhood on Martinique. She spent a lot of time outdoors, particularly swimming. As an adult in rainy Paris, she often remarked that she missed the sun and heat of the West Indies. She collected flowers in the lush green countryside, a hobby she would carry with her all her life. Not surprisingly for a child in the sugar capital of the world, she also developed a powerful sweet tooth, particularly for Vesu raw sugarcane juice. Josephine's later admirers would comment on her enigmatic closed-mouth Mona Lisa smile. In fact, this was a well-practiced affectation to hide the deplorable state of her teeth, which were rotten and discolored by the time she reached adulthood. Maybe there's a metaphor there for her general tendency towards self-indulgence. The Tasher family parenting methods were certainly questionable, but they achieved their goal. As a teenager, Josephine's older sister, Catherine, was engaged to Alexandre de Beauharnais, the son and heir of the fifth Viscount of Beauharnais, a high nobleman and governor of Martinique, 
who had a huge fortune and extensive land holdings on the island. Unfortunately, Catherine succumbed to illness before the wedding could take place. Josephine inherited her sister's fiancé, a 14-year-old girl engaged to a 17-year-old boy she hardly knew. Even by 18th century standards, 14 was too young for marriage. But at age 16, she was deemed ready. Josephine and her mother departed for the mainland, which she had never seen. Two months after her arrival in France, Josephine and Alexandre de Beauharnais were married. On paper, Alexandre looks like an ideal husband. On top of being rich and well-born, he was handsome, charismatic, and intelligent. He served in the military and soon came to be regarded as a rising star. Alexandra was a committed liberal and devoted to Enlightenment principles. He even developed a minor reputation as an intellectual. Practically everyone who knew Beauharnais came to like and respect him. But, as Josephine would soon learn, he had another side. Alexandra resented his new wife. He was an inveterate partier and womanizer. He did not plan on curtailing these activities just because his family had foisted some backwater colonial bride on him. He kept Josephine shut out of his life as much as possible. When forced to suffer her presence, Alexandra treated her with cold disdain and sometimes physical abuse. Understandably, Josephine soon came to resent him right back. Despite their mutual antipathy, the couple had a son shortly after their marriage, Eugène, who we met last time, followed soon after by a daughter, Hortense. After that, Alexandra seems to have decided that his duties as a husband were done. Shortly after his daughter's birth, he more or less abandoned his family to pursue his passions full-time. This didn't cause Josephine any economic hardship. She received a generous allowance and had free access to the considerable Beauharnais family estates, but it can't have been emotionally or psychologically easy. She was in her early 20s, raising two children alone in a strange country, utterly dependent on a man who hated her. As you might imagine, she was deeply unhappy. But what could she do? The couple lived essentially separate lives for the better part of ten years, Josephine raising the children in a gilded cage while Alexandra lived the high life. When the revolution came, her husband's star rose even higher. The early phase of French revolutionary politics was dominated by men just like Beauharnais rich liberal nobles who were inspired by the Enlightenment. Alexandra was elected to the National Assembly, even serving as its president for a brief time, then as Minister of War. These were heady days, but Josephine was not by his side for any of them. In 1793, at the Republic's most desperate hour, Alexandra's military experience became invaluable. He agreed to return to the army, to take command of the Army of the Rhine, and was promoted to general. By all accounts, he performed fine in command, but General Beauharnais had been thrust into a difficult situation, and predictably, it wasn't long before he presided over a major defeat. By now, the terror was in full swing, and combined with his noble blood and political connections to the Girondins, you can probably guess what defeat meant. 
he was recalled to Paris and imprisoned, pending an investigation. As the wife of a suspected traitor, it wasn't long before the authorities picked up Josephine as well. It sounds almost quaint, but in this era, when a married couple were both imprisoned, they were allowed to live together. And so, Josephine and Alexandra actually lived as husband and wife for the first time in years. Apparently, this wasn't a charade. They really did reconcile. Ironically, those months locked away in a prison awaiting almost certain death were probably the most harmonious of their marriage. Perhaps contemplating execution gave Alexandra a different perspective and led him to regret the way he'd treated his family. Or perhaps the couple simply clung to one another for strength and solace in those horrifying days. Whatever the case, maybe it was some small comfort when, in July of 1794, they learned that they would be facing their fate together. Both Alexandra and Josephine were found guilty of betraying the Republic and sentenced to death. They came for Alexandra first. On July 24th, 1794, he said his goodbyes to Josephine and was taken to the Place de la Révolution, where he met his end beneath the guillotine, age 34. Josephine was slated to follow him a week later, but, as you might recall, there were more important things afoot in Paris in late July of 1794. Only two days after Alexandre's death, Robespierre dramatically lost control of the convention. The coup of Thermidor had begun. On July 28th, Robespierre and his allies had their own rendezvous with the guillotine. Overnight, the ringleaders of the coup became the most powerful men in France. That group included Jean Lambert Tallien, a formerly obscure member of the convention who was married to Josephine's best friend, Teresa. In the new, more permissive atmosphere after Thermidor, it was easy for Tallien to secure Josephine's acquittal and release. She was free, but not the same. As you might imagine, surviving such a close call, seeing her recently reconciled husband executed, along with so many of her friends and peers, deeply affected Josephine. She had always had a self-indulgent, pleasure-seeking side, but this is the period of her life when it kicked into high gear. Josephine was traumatized, eager to live fast, to make up for the time lost in prison. After facing death at the age of 31, who can blame her for coming away with a sense of the transience of existence, and eager to pack in as much pleasure as she could in her remaining time on Earth? In a sense, her experience mirrored what all of Paris was going through. The cultural life of the city was entering a new age of decadence. Of course, few people had experienced brushes with death as close as Josephine's, but almost everyone had been touched by fear and suspicion at some point, particularly in high society. Just like Josephine, many were eager to forget, and what better way than with parties, drinking, and affairs? Josephine partook liberally in all three. She thrived in this hedonistic new social scene that developed after Thermidor. Thanks to her beauty, eye for fashion, and friendships with the rich and powerful, Josephine quickly became famous, or perhaps notorious, as a socialite. She and her friends set the trends. Her exploits became fodder for the tabloids. Middle-class Parisians knew her name. 
she was particularly infamous for her dalliances with powerful, influential men. Today, we don't usually think of politicians or military leaders as social butterflies, but that was very much the case in post-Thermidor Paris. Politics was closely entwined with the high-society social scene. The Thermidorian Convention, and later the Directory, conducted a lot of its business behind closed doors. Who you knew was often more important than what you believed or what was on your resume, and that made parties and salons seats of power. With that dynamic in mind, Josephine's affairs might have been more than simple pleasure-seeking. Perhaps, after narrowly escaping execution, she was trying to protect herself by ingratiating herself with potential saviors, the only way she knew how. Whatever her motivations, the succession of high-ranking politicians and military officers eventually took her to Bara, and Bara eventually steered her towards Napoleon. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It began as a one-sided romance. Just like on the battlefield, Napoleon pursued aggressively. But Josephine was not initially interested in the man she gave the rather infantilizing nickname of Little Bonaparte. Again, this was probably more a reference to his metaphorical stature in society rather than to his physical size. However, he slowly wore her down. A marriage to Little Bonaparte made sense from a practical perspective, even if her heart was not in it. Her current beau, Paul Barra, had made it very clear that marriage was not in their future. Indeed, Barra strongly encouraged her relationship with Napoleon, partly to bind him closer to a political ally, and partly as a way of getting rid of Josephine. He had grown tired of their relationship, but was obligated by social custom to continue supporting her financially, until another man entered her life to pick up the tab. Furthermore, Josephine's age was probably beginning to weigh on her mind. She was entering her mid-thirties, and would soon be outside of the age range generally considered desirable for marriage. And so, with Bara's help, Napoleon slowly won her over over the course of several months in late 1795 and early 1796. The two were married on March 9th, 1796. He was elated. She still had reservations. Letizia Bonaparte, Napoleon's mother, was against the match. According to Lucian, their mother thought Josephine was too old 
and unlikely to bear her any grandchildren, a prediction that would turn out to be true and to have larger political implications than anyone could have dreamed. We don't know how aware Napoleon was of Josephine's misgivings. As I've mentioned time and again, he was painfully inexperienced with women and romance. Maybe he thought this was all normal. Whatever the case, on March 9th, they were married in a small civil ceremony, witnessed only by a small group of friends. It was a good Republican wedding. Napoleon wore his general's uniform, and Josephine wore a tricolor sash over her Roman-style white dress. However, the couple did betray civic virtue by lying on their certificate of marriage. Napoleon moved his birthday back one year to 1768, and Josephine moved hers forward four years to 1767, thus erasing their age difference. Napoleon would always claim this white lie was told for his wife's vanity, but you have to wonder if such an ambitious man might have been thinking of his public image. Bara attended the ceremony. He acted as a groomsman, even though, in a sense, he was giving away the bride. Napoleon kept everyone waiting for two hours. As we'll discuss in a moment, he was frantically busy with army business, and, not being much of a romantic, he delayed his own wedding to attend to his duties. The local mayor officiated. He dozed off while they waited. Napoleon finally arrived around 10 p.m. Someone prodded the mayor awake, and Mr. and Mrs. Bonaparte were married. The wedding itself was nothing fancy, but Josephine had demanded a massive dowry. Napoleon spent his last remaining cent buying her a selection of jewelry and precious stones. That might sound like a reckless purchase, but he was in love, and perhaps more importantly, his prospects had just improved yet again. Exactly one week before the wedding, March 2nd, was perhaps, in the grand scheme of things, an even more important day in Napoleon's life. On that day, General Bonaparte was offered command of the Army of Italy. The government had grown dissatisfied with the army's commander, General Scherer who had so rudely dismissed Napoleon as an untrustworthy intriguer only a year before. Scherer wasn't a bad general. He'd held his ill-supplied, often mutinous army together and kept the Austrians and Piedmontese off of French soil. He'd even won a few serious victories. However, he was also cautious to a fault. That hadn't been an issue when the Army of Italy was expected only to hold its ground but the strategic calculations of the Republican leadership had shifted. Consensus was finally coming around to Napoleon's way of thinking. France was going on the offensive in northern Italy. Scherer complied, and in late 1795, marched his troops over the Alpine passes into Piedmont, where they won a crushing victory over the coalition at the Battle of Loano on November 24th. Once again, divisional commander General André Massena stole the show from his nominal commander. But Scherer did not follow up on his victory and continue the offensive. He didn't have many connections in Paris, so that decision probably sealed his fate. The politicians began looking for someone who would fight aggressively. This was Napoleon's golden opportunity. This northern Italian offensive had been his pet issue for over a year now. 
This was his area of specialization at the Topographical Bureau, and unlike the desk jockeys at the Bureau, he'd actually fought in this theater of the war, sized up the terrain and the enemy forces. He knew the Army of Italy from the ground level, as a flesh-and-blood human enterprise, not just as pins on a map and a collection of names and numbers in a ledger. Bonaparte desperately wanted this appointment, so he leaned on Barra to lobby on his behalf. The other directors needed some convincing. Napoleon had very little field experience for someone seeking a major army command. Sure, he'd shown promise, but he'd actually fought in very few engagements. France had been locked in a desperate struggle for over three years, and yet Bonaparte had only really fought in two sizable battles against professional foreign armies, Toulon and Saorgio. He hadn't seen any combat at his current rank. Even Carnot, who had grown to respect Napoleon's work at the Topographical Bureau, was skeptical. Supposedly, Barra told his fellow directors, quote, Promote this man, or he will promote himself without you. End quote. It's become a famous line, but I doubt Barra actually said it. Pointing out Napoleon's intense ambition would be a strange way to recommend him for an army command. And I'm skeptical of anything in history that seems so much like foreshadowing. Anyway, Napoleon and Barra actually did have some good arguments in favor of the appointment. It was inarguably true that Bonaparte had advocated the new offensive strategy in Italy long before anyone in power had seen its wisdom. And what little experience he had was relevant. The directors were no doubt also aware that they still owed him a debt for Vendémiaire. So, on March 2nd, they relented. Bonaparte got his appointment. He took a week to settle his affairs in Paris including marrying Josephine and spending a measly three-day honeymoon at his new wife's house on the chic Rue Chantereine, still a fashionable area today, not far from Galerie Lafayette. After their brief honeymoon, Napoleon and his small entourage set out for the Alps. By the time Napoleon returned to Paris, the Rue Chantereine would be renamed the Rue de la Victoire, the Street of Victory, in his honor. Accompanying Bonaparte were Junot and Marmont, who had served as his trusted aides since Toulon, along with Joachim Murat, the young cavalry officer who had served him so well during Vendémiaire and was now officially part of the team. And last but not least, Louis Bonaparte, his 17-year-old younger brother and newest aide. As he left the city, Napoleon also left behind his old name, I've been glossing over this in the name of simplicity, but up until now he had been known to the world as Napoleon Bonaparte, basically just a French adaptation of his original Corsican name. Of course, as a good revolutionary, he had dropped the aristocratic D prefix. Napoleon always had an eye on publicity, and he worried it might look a bit odd for a general with this Italian-sounding name to be leading a French army invading Italy. And so, it was at this point that he adopted the familiar Napoleon Bonaparte spelling, and the thoroughly French-sounding pronunciation of Napoleon Bonaparte. Before Napoleon left Paris, Carnot had given him the Army of Italy's official orders for the year's campaign. 
As was customary, they were sealed, only to be opened once he had departed on his mission. As I think anyone would do, he opened them as soon as he was a respectable distance from the city. He discovered that Carnot probably could have saved himself the trouble. Napoleon already knew these orders by heart. Inside the package was Napoleon's own plan for an invasion of northern Italy, which he'd been laboring over during his months at the Topographical Bureau. Carnot was giving him free reign to fight the campaign he had been envisioning since 1794. Napoleon had always believed he was destined to play a great role in history. He had stubbornly insisted on this destiny, even when it seemed ludicrously out of reach. Now, he finally had his chance to realize it. In Italy, Napoleon would be fighting not only for his country and for his ideals, but also to finally deliver on a lifetime of dreams of military glory. As part of her dowry, Napoleon had bought Josephine a golden brooch, engraved with the words, To Destiny. It might have seemed a little grandiose at the time, but he was exactly right. Bonaparte was on his way to meet his destiny. That's all for now. Next time we'll meet the Army of Italy, the instrument with which Napoleon would win fame and glory. Until then, why not check out some of the other podcasts on our new network, Recorded History. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>